Bibles, if you would now, to the epistle of First John chapter 1. It's a wonderful privilege for us to be able to open up God's Word again on Wednesday evenings. I do wish that there were more people in our church that would take the opportunity and come out for Wednesday night Bible studies. Uh, coming to this service, I think, is, is encouraging to us in so many ways. Uh, just whenever you open the Bible and you read God's Word, it's always a blessing to you. It's always uh, encouraging for us. But I think when we're in tough times, uh, opening the Scriptures and studying the Word is especially compelling for us. And when John was writing to, century, to Christians in the first century, they were experiencing very hard times, persecution. And what we find here in First John is really an antidote for depression. And it comes from really understanding who Christ is. If Jesus is an ordinary man who has his own troubles and uh, things with his own life that seem to be unsolvable, then we would think, what hope do we possibly have? And so John opens this letter with no hesitation. He doesn't give us an introduction. He has a point to make, and it makes it, he makes it very quickly. And his point is, in this first part, what you know about Christ will make a difference in your life. It'll make a difference in how you view the world. It'll make a difference in how you view your own life. And when you look at Christ with right eyes and with the right perspective, it changes everything for you. So John begins with that very point. What does he know about Jesus. Well, let's read what he says. Let's start with 1 John chapter 1, verse number 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father, and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. Now our concentration this evening is on verses 3 and 4. What you know about Christ controls the joy of your life. And what John knew was the absolute truth of Christ's deity and of his humanity. He was an uh, eyewitness of Jesus. He was an ear witness. He was a hands-on witness of Christ. He knew he was Lord. He knew that he was God. He knew he was from the beginning. He said he is eternal life that's been manifested to us. But he also knew Jesus in a different way, and that is having that close contact on that human side of Jesus. He knew that Jesus is so personal that he identifies with every human emotion that we have. And so John declares what he saw and heard for a particular purpose. And the purpose statement for the first three verses of John, 1 John, is verse number 4. And he says there, it is that your joy may be full. Now that's what I want to consider for a few minutes tonight. We're looking at the joy of Christians. And I think a good place for us to start would be at the beginning... And that would be the source of joy. The source of joy, of course, is Jesus Christ. And I've chosen as the title for the message tonight a statement that was made by Peter. Peter is writing about the blessing of salvation in Christ. And he says in 1 Peter chapter 1, "...whom having not seen, ye love, and whom though ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls." 
Joy unspeakable is what Peter says. And that's the joy that we find in our salvation. It's to be united to Christ by faith. And the faith that we have is not a faith that's built upon subjective reasonings of philosophy, but our faith is actually built upon the concrete evidence of what Jesus did when he was here veiled in human flesh. And the source of our joy is the right understanding of our salvation in Christ, and we really can't fully appreciate all that there is in that unless we know Christ as the person, really know who Jesus is. And this was very important to John because there was much confusion that had been brought about in the church by false teaching. The wrong idea about Christ will spoil a person's faith. It spoils his assurance. It becomes defeating. It becomes depressing. And the false teachings of the Gnostics that John was combating had undermined the joy of these Christians by confusing the core doctrines of the faith, such as the virgin birth and the bodily resurrection of Christ. And of course, along with that would be the incarnation. And we've dealt extensively with those doctrines in our discussion of the first three verses. So I don't want to go back into those same doctrinal considerations tonight, but those are very important because confusion about those doctrines would logically destroy the gospel itself. It takes away the vicarious suffering of Christ and the atonement for sin. But rather than to discuss that, my purpose this evening is to show you that removing the foundation of doctrine out from under our salvation of who Christ really is is something that will destroy our joy. And so in order to maintain that joy that we have, we do need to know about the person of Christ. Well, I want to give you a couple of reasons tonight. Uh, First of all, that are reasons for joy, for considering the source of our joy. And there are many, many reasons I could give you, but here are just a couple that fit the passage that's under consideration. First, we would say that joy comes from relationship. I need to know that I have a relationship with God. And I mean not just a relationship in the sense that I know that God is my creator. I know he made me and put me here. I need to know more than that. I need to know that I'm not just a creature among billions of God's creatures. I need to know that I have a personal relationship with God in such a way that I'm different from all other creatures that God has. I'm different from snakes and tree frogs and bugs. And I'm different also from really the the mass of nameless Christianity. When you think about it, this is really what is so depressing about evolution. Evolution teaches that man is an animal, and we hear expressions all the time like this, such as the human animal. But man is not an animal. Man doesn't have any uh, common ancestry with amoebas and monkeys. Man is a direct creation from God, and he was made fully formed and made in the image of God. And if you take that away, then you destroy that personal relationship that we have. In our studies of the Sermon on the Mount, we've seen that special relationship very clearly by the illustrations that Jesus gave. Uh, He's talking about the care that God has for his people. And it's important for us to know uh, that we're not just a creature of God, but that we have a relationship with him because there are some that uh, Jesus said do not have a relationship with God. There are some who are the children of the devil. And so we need to know that the the ones who are chosen out by God are a special people and they have a peculiar relationship to him. They can call God their father. 
And Jesus used that relationship to point out to how that is different from the birds and other animals that are on the earth. They don't have a relationship with God. And Jesus points out that God takes care of them even though they have no relationship. And he compares that and he says, well, if God uh, has that care for the creature, how much more is he going to care for you who is in that special relationship? But if evolution was true and man is just an animal, then Jesus' illustration would be pointless. It wouldn't really make any sense. I need to know that I have God as my Father so that I can have joy. And I think that the longer that we teach godless evolution to our children, the more that we're going to have a discontented people. We'll have people that have no joy in their lives because they have really no relationship with God. So we have to understand who God is in that relationship that he has with man. And the humanity of Christ, of course, would be very important with that concerning relationship because Christ must have a near kinsmanship with man in order to identify with the weakness that we have in our human flesh. Hebrews says, For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted." John says, I write this to you so that I can give you a witness concerning the humanity of Christ so that your joy may be full. And that is a very important statement owing to the false doctrine that was being taught and because of that present circumstance of persecution that the people were in. If you take away the humanity of Christ, then you take away that peculiar relationship. And so, how is God going to be able to identify with man and what we're going through? How could we be sure that God sees, what, sees what's happening in our lives and really cares about that? How would we know if Christ had not actually become human? And so, when things are crumbling around us and we get depressed about things, it's good to know that God has, has experienced that. Jesus experienced all of that, and he knows what we're going through. Now, when things are going well, it, it may be possible for us to maintain a measure of joy. But the interesting thing that John writes here in this terminology, it could be phrased this way. He could say it this way, your, that your joy may remain full. In other words, you can have times in your life when you're close to running on empty. During the bad times, uh, you, you may not have the full joy that you would like to have, but it's good to know that you can go back to God and that God can replenish that. He can fill up your joy once again. And this is what John is saying then, that your joy may remain full, that you can keep running on that full tank of the joy that God wants you to have. Now, knowing the relationship that you have with God means that the economy can fail, your friends can desert you, your health may fail, but God is still your Father, and you know Him, and you have a relationship with Him only for one reason. That's because of His Son, Jesus Christ. So if you were to take that away... I mean, if this doctrine of the Gnostics had been true, that there is no incarnation, God does not identify with man in that way, then you take away the hope of these persecuted Christians. If they're confused about that relationship by being told that God did not become incarnate, then it ruins the assurance that they have that God can actually sympathize with man. So joy is maintained by relationship with God. Now, we also notice that joy comes from fellowship. 
Our fellowship with God helps us to maintain our joy. Now, we're going to talk about fellowship in another way in just a moment, which concerns fellowship that we have with one another. But before we can ever have true fellowship with other believers, we first of all must have fellowship with God. David expressed the loss of joy when fellowship with God was broken. And we're all familiar with David's great sin in his life, the sin that he committed adultery with Bathsheba, and then after that, of course, the murder of Uriah. And David wrote Psalm 51, which was right after Nathan the prophet had come to him and, and uh, uh, faced him or confronted him with that sin. And David wrote in Psalm 51, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast, not me. cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation, and uphold me with thy free spirit. Joy of salvation was lost because sin had separated David from fellowship. Now, I've been quick to point out on, uh, in other sermons dealing with this topic that relationship is not the same as fellowship. The relationship that we have with God can never be broken once we have become his children. But fellowship with God can be broken and is often broken because of our sin. And John points this out a little bit later in this first chapter, in verse 6. He says, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. And then he goes on in verse number 7 to speak of how sin also can sever fellowship with other Christians. He says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ his Son cleanseth us from all sin. So knowing that you have fellowship with God is a source of joy. And I think here is the reason why that we have so many joyless Christians. And that's because there are too many of us that are spending our time dabbling in sin. And there are repercussions concerning joy whenever you enter into sin. You can't pray when you're, when you're in sin. And prayer is a chief means that we have a fellowship with God. Uh, the, the scriptures teach us that unconfessed sin will hinder our prayers. Disobedience is a prayer killer. And John also addresses that in this letter. Uh, you'll recognize it because it's a verse that I've told you is one of my favorite in scripture. 1 John 3.22 And whatsoever we ask we receive of him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. The converse of that statement would be, if we don't keep his commandments, then God will not give us what we ask. And I've found this to be true in my life, that when I'm disobedient to God, it robs me of the desire that I have to pray. I lose fellowship because of sin. I lose the desire because of sin. And when that happens to it, it just keeps driving you deeper and deeper into despair. Then fellowship is expressed in another important way. Fellowship is important for our joy, and we see it another way. Uh, Sin brings chastisement from God, which in turn takes away joy. Listen to what the author of Hebrews says. He says, Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. So Christians that are in the middle of sin are not in fellowship with God. And if you're uh, truly one of God's people, he won't let you get by without the chastisement. And so the order of this is sin, then, then loss of fellowship, chastisement, and no joy. 
And we thank the Lord when the chastisement comes because that is what awakes us to the sin that's in us. It makes us miserable and we seek to rectify that by confession of the sin in order that our fellowship might be restored. So fellowship then is a source of joy. And there's a great old hymn we all know that expresses it this way. It says, when we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. While we do his good will, he abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Now let's go on to another consideration about joy. Secondly is the sharing of joy. John is a great example of this because he really does not want anything to upset the fellowship of believers. He wants the joy that the apostles have to be their joy. Now, the joy of the apostles, once again, comes from the truth about Christ. When Jesus was crucified, he told his disciples, or just before he was crucified, that the day was approaching and he would have to leave them. And they were joyful while they had that personal contact with Jesus, when they could physically see him and touch him and talk with him. But when Jesus said, I will have to depart from you, then their joy began to depart as well. And so Jesus told them that he wasn't going to leave them without comfort. He said, the Holy Spirit will come to you, and then that physical presence will be replaced with something else, and it will replace with something that's much greater. They would have not just the physical presence of Christ in an outward way, but when the Holy Spirit came, the Spirit of Christ would be in them. Now, they had the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, in one sense of the word, with their salvation. But at that time, they didn't have the realization of the Spirit's work within them. And it was similar to Old Testament times with the presence of the Spirit. People in the Old Testament had the Holy Spirit, but they didn't have the realization of him in a deep, personal way and knowing him as the Spirit of Christ that was in them. And so this new realization of the Spirit came on the day of Pentecost, and when that came, the people were energized with the gospel, and they began a sharing fellowship that really took on new proportions. And we notice that this in three ways when the Holy Spirit came. We notice it with the communion that they had with others. And we might call that also their commonality with others. I mean, here was a diversified group, and when the Holy Spirit came, they entered into new relationships. Now, now, before the Spirit came, we have 120 disciples, and they're a very tight-knit group, mostly similar people. So there were 120 of them that stuck together and they were waiting for the Holy Spirit to come and to give further revelation. And then on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit came, there was this explosion. And this group of 120 disciples suddenly swelled to over 3,000 in one day. And then in just a short period of time, the numbers reached 20,000 people that were Christians. And that rapid growth began to cause some logistical problems. All of these people that were living different lives and living their lives doing their own thing had been converted, and now they were all concerned about the very same thing. And so now you have 20,000 people trying to stick together rather than 120. And so what that did was to prompt them to start sharing. They started selling their property. They started pooling resources in order that they might care for each other. In Acts chapter 6, we learn there, that's what led to the appointment of the first deacons of the church. Uh, this group looked nothing at all like the previous group. And for a time, there was strife that entered in among them. So deacons were appointed to assist the Hellenistic Jews who thought that they were being slighted in favor of the Hebrew Jews. 
Well, all of that had to be evened out, evened out so that everybody would be treated alike. And then later on, you have the Gentiles that are all thrown into that mix, and there becomes a great hurdle for these people to overcome. So what was it that enabled them to get over that hump? To, I mean, to really, to bring the people together, how could they overcome? Well, it was through the common experience and the realization that all of them were now brothers and sisters in Christ. They had the same God as their father. They have a common salvation. And the truth of the matter is, you can't put together prejudice and diversified groups, and you can't get joy and peace and contentment out of them unless something very radical has taken place in each of those individual people. And once that change takes place, which, of course, is Christ coming into their heart, then the joy of salvation has to be shared. And now it no longer matters whether you're red or yellow or black or white. Rich or poor doesn't matter. I mean, just like Paul said, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You can't have that fellowship unless hearts have been changed with a common experience of faith. And if we don't have that, we'll maintain our separation. And that's really something that I like about church. Uh, the diversity that we have in our church is a blessing to us. I mean, I try real hard with all this diversity. And, and if you try real hard, I find that I could even like Democrats. I can make that happen as well. That's a joke, folks. Jack, that's a joke. <laughs> So that common experience of faith, that gives us joy and we can share it with one another. The second thing is the commitment that we have to others. Fellowship is a commitment. Fellowship is built upon the care that Christians have for one another. Here's a place where a Christian will receive joy. And it's just this helping and this caring and loving that you have for other Christians. And that's really another one of the themes that we have in First John. Love is crucial to Christian contentment. In the passage I read just a moment ago from chapter 3, John was discussing his love for the brethren. And he said, we, we, brethren, he said, we get what we ask for when we pray because we keep the commandments. And the greatest commandments are what? Love for God and love for each other. And the underlying point of that discussion is that if we don't have this love, then it destroys our prayer lives, which in turn puts us out of fellowship with God. And so this is something that a Christian learns very quickly. You are not going to be a joyous person unless you are sharing love for the brethren. You have to be committed to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul puts it this way in Philippians 2. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye may be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Sometimes I think that we don't see how closely connected that the doctrines of the faith really are. Christians that are careless about their relationships are not good church members. They're not prayer warriors. They're hardly ever good supporters of leadership. They're almost always disgruntled about something, and consequently, they don't have any joy. But when you learn this, when you start to treat people well, when you have in your mind that you want to help your brother, all of that turns around for you. 
Christ begins to, Christ fills you, the Spirit fills you, the work of Christ becomes evident in you, you you love to pray, it becomes a blessing to you, you can't get enough of God's Word. Preachers like joyful Christians because it makes their own ministries joyful. And you know why? Because people that are caring people and loving people are always the ones that are willing to submit to the preaching of God's Word. Listen to Hebrews. It says, Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. He goes on and says, Obey them that have the rule over you, and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls, as they must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. Preachers minister with joy when the people that they're ministering to heed the word of God. And it always works this way, that caring, joyful people make for caring, joyful ministries. And so when you share the joy, everybody is blessed by that. Well, there's a final way that joy is shared, and that is the concern that we have for others. Now here I'm not speaking about the concern that we have for other Christians. We've already talked about that kind of concern. But I'm speaking here of the concern that we have for those that are lost. Last year when I was in Brother Castro's church, he asked me if I would preach three messages that had the church as the theme. And so in the 10 o'clock hour in his services, I brought a message about discipleship. In the 11 11 o'clock hour, I preached about church membership. And in that message, I listed some of the reasons why that you would want to be a member of the church and why it is so important. I mentioned teaching. Uh, The church is a place for teaching. I spoke about the ordinances of the church. The church is the only place that's authorized to administer baptism and the Lord's Supper. I spoke of identification with the Lord. A person who wants others to know where he stands and where, where his faith is, he'll join a church and commit himself to that fellowship. But I also talked about evangelism. And perhaps this is really the greatest meaning of sharing our joy Because a truly joyous person is not one who will keep what he knows to himself. The psalmist said, He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. How many have heard that verse before? How many of you know the context and what the verse actually means? Probably most of you have never heard what Psalm 126.6 is actually talking about. Let me tell you what it means. Uh, It's a verse that's often read and quoted without mentioning immediate context. But the psalm is actually about the return of the Jewish exiles from captivity. And in the first year that they returned, uh, that would be a very difficult thing for them. Uh, What they would have to do, they wouldn't have very much food because they would have to uh, plant their crops and then they have to wait until that first crop comes in. It has to be harvested and then put into the barn. And the weeping of the verse refers to the hardships that their family, of their families having to do without. They would suffer hunger until that first hardship came. And that would be very hard on, on fathers or their families and so forth to see their children, their wives in such distress. But then it goes on and it says that the same man who is careful to sow his seed, he receives his harvest and then with joy he finally will bring in those sheaves of grain and then he'll be able to feed his family. Now, that's the context of what Psalm 126 is talking about, the joy of the actual physical harvest, of planting that, seeing it finally come in, and then being able uh, to have the food that, that they needed. 
But surely we can see that the application that's made from this particular scripture is also true and that there's an intention here to show us that spreading the gospel is also something that is going to be very difficult at times. It'll be hard. Uh, We'll labor and labor and work and work and work on and on and on, sometimes without results, it seems. But if we are faithful to sow that harvest, or sow the seed rather, the harvest will come. That's the promise that God gives. We don't know exactly how God's going to do it, but if we sow the seeds of the gospel, and no matter how many ways that we sow it, God is going to return a harvest to us. And the point is that there is no greater joy for a Christian than to see another soul that's brought to Jesus Christ. And I think that much of the problem with joy among Christians today is that we have forgotten what that joy is like. We've forgotten how exciting it was when we were saved. We first came to Christ and we had this attitude that we just couldn't wait to tell others. But as we've grown old in our Christian lives, we've uh, just had that feeling wear off and, and that sense of joy is lost to many Christians. If you look at the ministry of Jesus, you'll find that people that were saved couldn't wait until they got the news out. Oddly enough, there were times when Jesus said, I wish you would hold back a little bit. Just don't go tell everybody right now because they'd stir up such a fuss that that was going to cause problems for Jesus. You know, we get a little bit confused about that sometimes, why Jesus would tell people to keep quiet that he had saved them. But you know what always happened? They couldn't do it. They couldn't keep quiet. They were always going and telling people. Jeremiah, the old weeping prophet, said that the word of God was like a fire in his bones. He couldn't keep it in. He had to preach to somebody. Remember the story of the maniac of Gadara, that man that Jesus cast out legions of of demons. And when he was saved, he was so excited about it that what he wanted to do was to join Jesus in a preaching tour. He said, I want to get in the boat and go with you and spread the word that way. And Jesus told him, he said, well, that's not the best thing for you to do. You go back to your own people, go back to your own city and tell them what's happened to you. And then we find that's exactly what the man did. The Bible says he went back and he published all of this, what Jesus had done with them. And that's what people that come to know the Lord do. When Jesus called Andrew, what was his first response? He went and told his brother Peter that he had met Jesus. And that's sort of what you expect when you read the Scriptures. Whenever you see people getting saved, you expect the next thing that they're going to do is just go tell somebody else about it. And you know, it happens here too. We see it with new Christians. You know, I think about Jorge. Jim Love taught him well. I mean, he's telling people about about the Lord. He calls me up sometimes during the day and talks about what's wrong with these people that they don't listen. And uh, you get frustrated by that sometimes. That's what I'm talking about. Sowing the seed and and putting the labor in in the fields is, is rough work sometimes. And people try to shut you down and shut you off. But you keep doing it and somebody's going to listen. And there's a man right there and his wife that are two people that could tell you, well, finally, they did listen, didn't they? And they got saved and thanked the Lord for that. And then sitting right next to him is Jack. And, uh, you know, I can see that in Jack when he comes and he says, I need you to pray for my brother. I want him to be saved. And then I've got this other family that I'm friends with and pray that they'll respond to my invitation to come to church to hear the Word of God. And, you know, sometimes it's not that, you know, you may not be able to to articulate everything as clearly as you want to say it. You may have difficulty getting the words out. Just get people to 
come to church. Just, just get them here where they can center the preaching of the Word. Don't lose that zeal that you have to bring people to Christ. As we get older in our Christian lives, the, the, really the feeling of it should not wane. It should be getting stronger all the time that we want people to know the Lord. So we wonder about that. Where, where is that zeal for some of us that have, are Christians that have been saved for a long time? And I think that we're missing a whole lot of the contentment of being Christians because we're not sharing the joy. And so we end up without joy. And this is what John is writing about. He says, I'm writing this that your joy may be full. And he's telling them there are certain necessities that you have to keep that joy full. Now, you might be here and, and you have joy, you think, but it's somewhat depleted. It's not at the level that you want it to be. It's running low. And what you'd really like to do is perk up that happiness of your Christian life then the way to do it is to take care of some of the things that John talks about to help replenish that supply. Part of it's that fellowship that you have with other Christians. It's, it's the fellowship of sharing the Word of God with other people. Those things will help to replenish your joy. So there are good lessons here for us. The source of our joy is Jesus You have to know him. You have to know the correct doctrines concerning him. The more that you know about Christ, the more joyful that you'll be. The right perspective about right doctrines concerning Christ are non-negotiables when it comes to joy. And to the extent that you don't know those things, your joy is depleted. And then to remain joyful, I said you need to share your joy. Realize what you have in common with other people who know Christ as Savior. And they're all over the world. You know, this is one of the reasons why I really love to go to a place like the Shepherds Conference. And and there, there's people from all over, literally from all over the world. I can't remember how many countries were represented. I think a couple of years ago, we went there, like 55 countries where where people had come from to different countries to, to hear and fellowship with, with other Christians. And that is a just, just a wonderful thing to know that there are people around the world who know the Lord. But as important as that is, I think it's more important to consider that right here in your own church, you need to have care and concern and, and fellowship with the people of your church. Be a part of what's going on in your church, and I promise you that you'll maintain your joy. And then, of course, again, sharing that joy with those who don't know Christ. Be sure that you do that. And I think that's when you get what Peter was talking about, joy unspeakable and full of glory. You've done all the things that it takes to maintain joy. So it's not hard to figure out John's urgency in this matter. He knows what happens to your joy when uh, people are confused about who Christ is. If they don't understand Christ's humanity, they don't understand his deity, they don't know the doctrines of the faith, then they can't be as joyful as they ought to be. So it's a great, great look at this. That's something that we really need to study, how to keep that joy full, how to be energized to do our work for Christ. And that is to put into place the things that John will say in this little bitty epistle. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful that we're able to be here tonight and to look into your word. And we do have joy, Lord, because we know that you've saved us. And, and we trust you for um, our lives and for what you've given us. And, and you've made so many promises to us. But we realize also, Lord, that our joy could be even greater joy if we would just love one another as we should, to have care and concern, and instead of backbiting people, gossiping with people, and doing those kinds of things, that we really just put our hearts out there and, and love one another as we should, treat one another well. 
And then, Lord, I pray that also we would see a revival, a resurgence of people who want to share their faith. And we can do that uh, in, at work, at, at school, at uh, just any place that, that we are. And we may not even just have to say the words, just living a, a Christian life before people. As your word says, there are some who are going to come and ask us of the joy that's in us, the difference in us, what causes that, and that's that opportunity to tell them about you. So, Lord, we pray that you would open up opportunities to us, and then we would avail ourselves of those opportunities. Bless as we sing tonight. We thank you for your people, Lord, and for their desire to learn your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.